Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You were born in South Africa, but grew up in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. What kind of childhood did you have? Well, uh, I really didn't know my childhood in uh, in Durban because I left there when I was two months mm-hmm. old. And the early stages where I realized that I was in, in another country was in uh, in Rhodesia at that time in a place called Sonoya, now called Chinoy. Uh, my father was on the railways there and my mother just, you know, just bringing us up and being a house uh, housekeeper. And then he got transferred to Salisbury. And when we went to, through to Salisbury, that's when we went through to school. And uh, it was a, a great little, you know, upbringing in a flat in the, in the initial stages, and then in a, a railway house that they gave us. And uh, my father and mother were just, you know, working in the city. She was selling shoes. He was on the railways. And we joined the, the club, the railway club called Railton. Uh, my father played uh, soccer there, football. My mother played hockey in the uh, winter, and in the summer they both played baseball, uh, softball and baseball. So that's what I grew up with, you know, and it was a it was very easy uh, living. We'll talk about the state of Zimbabwe as it becomes, Rhodesia becomes Zimbabwe, and your relationship with Robert Mugabe later. These are, of course, the last days of South Africa and Rhodesia being the kind of countries they were, parts of the British Empire and all the rest of it. Were you aware of this as a young person that things were about to change or were going to change or were changing? Well, when I was growing up, yes, I did. In uh, 1960, I think it was 1962, was the first uh, terrorist attack uh, on a farmer. Um, And the country was changing at that time. And I was very, very young growing up. And we had a houseboy called Romick who used to take, uh, take me to school on the bike. And my sister used to walk... And he used to take me to the uh, the school there with, the, with on the bicycle, and uh, yeah, he was essentially my my guardian, uh, my, my care, and he looked after me. Uh, it was you know he was with us for uh, must have been fifteen years, um, and later in life when when I'd grown up and got through to the army, uh, he came through to us one day and said, uh, Bruce, uh, my son. Uh, Phineas has uh, actually joined the Freedom Fighters and he actually came back Phineas you know I could have actually just grabbed him taken him to the police mm-hmm. uh, we sat and chatted in the garden and he said I've joined the uh, the Freedom Fighters and I said yes and I'm in the army he said well perhaps we might meet in the bush uh, but if we meet in the bush I might have to shoot you I said well I might have to shoot you first um 
And that's how it went. We left each other. We went our separate ways, and uh, unfortunately, he did get shot in a, in a different uh, area of the country. Okay, well, um, we'll come back to your your experiences in that civil war that uh, eventually became mm-hmm. a terrible part of the history of Rhodesia later Zimbabwe. What about as a, a young footballer? Um, were you always going to be a footballer, not cricket, something like that? Well, I played all the sports. You know, I played... Uh, Annoyingly good at all of them, yeah? In the winter, I played... Uh, Football and rugby, rugby at school and football in the at the, the sports club, and cricket at school and baseball at the sports club. So I played the four codes of sport. Uh, I ended up playing three sports for my country. That's uh, cricket, baseball, and soccer. And I could have played rugby, but I, at the age of fourteen, I signed my first professional contract with Salisbury Callies, and that deemed that I should not play any uh, contact sport, which rugby was. So that came out of the window. So then, how did you how did you eventually um, go up the leagues in in Southern African football, shall we say? Well, yeah, in Southern Africa, it was uh, in Southern Rhodesia. They they had a league, uh, but Salisbury Callies they had won everything in the white league. Mm-hmm. There were two leagues essentially: a white league and and a, a black league. So they put themselves into the black league and played in the townships and. You know, the reason they put themselves in the Black League because they, the Africans were vastly superior in their skills. So they wanted to put themselves against the, the Africans. And it was a, a great learning curve because you go into the townships learning their culture, their, uh, the way they are, their superstitions. And, yeah, you get, uh, you get attacked few, on a few occasions if you win. You know, your bus gets stoned because you've won two one and you get out of the township as uh, as soon as you can. And it's about that time when the trouble started in the in the in the bushes as well. So for us to go into and play against uh, the Africans was a, a great learning curve for us. And you know the jocks, they don't they they'll go anywhere. And it's a Scottish club anyway. Bruce, uh, we talked about your early days um playing for some of the clubs in Southern Africa, including Durban City, after which you signed up well, you didn't sign up. You were forced to do two years national service. Uh, sorry, I, it's not like you sign up like a footballer, is it? In the Rhodesian <laughs> Regiment. Um, unfortunately for you, I guess that was during the time when the, the war in, 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 in what gets called the Bush War between the uh, African National Liberation Army, um, the African National Union. The, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, little uh, of different uh, uh, acronyms beginning with Z here that I don't understand. And, of course, the Rhodesian Army. I'm... I'm almost loath to ask the next question. What was that like? <laughs> well, what happened there was uh, I was sold uh, as, a, as a soccer player from one, one team to another. Um, I was sold by the Salisbury Callies after playing on loan at uh, Matabili Lana Highlanders and going through doing my O-levels at school. I said to my mother, I'm going to become a goalkeeper. She said, which team? I said, Matabili Lana Highlanders. She says, no, no, you better phone the... The the, Scot- the Scottish team, the jocks, mm-hmm. and find out who uh, where they've sold you to. So I ring them up. I've been sold to Chibuku back in uh, Salisbury, and I didn't like it. Lasted six weeks. I told the uh, the manager then to put his uh, team where it, you know mm-hmm. where the sun doesn't shine, and he said you'll never play uh, soccer again. I went back to Bulawayo, and my mother said to me, "What are you doing here?" I said, well, I'm going to go down to Durban. She said, no, you're not. Let's go to the uh, barracks, Brady Barracks, and uh, see when you're going to be called up, because you're going to be called up. Because every young man was, yeah. yeah. So we go down there, and uh, we ask uh, Grobola 
uh, when am I going to get called up? Oh, six months' time. I look, I look at my mother. I said, six months' time, I'll be in Durban surfing. And he turned to my mother and said, well, there is an intake going in tomorrow morning. And she grabbed my hand, and I signed, and I went in the next day. Uh, yeah, I signed up for 11 months because that was the initial thing. Uh, my intake, 147. Uh, we went in as a double intake. There were too many people because they, they needed to get the youngsters in there. And, yeah, we uh, did six weeks training, and that six weeks training was uh, border control. When we went down to uh, to uh, Eastern Highlands, guarding a school, Christmas uh, 1975, we got started getting mortared from the other side, so our little shell scrapes became bunkers, you know, sandbagged and getting, getting un underground, burrowing, and that was it, the start of the war. Um, unfortunately for myself, we had 33 days to go at the end of that 11-month contract when the radio said, uh, unfortunately, all intakes will go up to 18 months. So uh, I looked at everybody says, that's not going to be us. It's going to be the new ones. As from intake 146, and I was in 147. Mm -hmm. So we did another six months, and there we had two days to go over a weekend Friday, we came back from the bush, give our all our stuff into the quartermaster stores. That weekend, we're gonna oh, we're passing out. Fantastic! What happens on the on the fr uh, Saturday night? Right, guys, back in. We're back in for another six months. So I was caught in two escalated uh, war war experiences. Did you actually do fighting in the war, Bruce? Yes. Uh, what happened with uh, our intake uh, five in depth? We, uh, our major, Major Taylor, he, he made, it, made sure that our unit was a mobile unit. So for three weeks, the 10 of us would go with the Salu Scouts on a tracking course. So we were tracking, and we, we, the 10 of us came out as grade A trackers. So, and we came and we were a unit. Some others went off uh, for medics, some others went off for. Um, radio and signals and so we could be uh, mobilized anywhere in the country and it was uh, the very first one and the only one that happened in the Rhodesian War the Re with a Rhodesian regiment five independent company became a mobile unit your stick was four you and three others easier to be picked up by the helicopter and we were dropped in into uh, various uh, contacts for you afterwards to follow the the opposition and we did we caught quite a few yeah and we got you know shot at one of you know friends of mine getting killed right next to you and you got to carry on going uh getting pinned down in in uh, places where you couldn't uh you, you didn't know where this uh, the the firing was coming from until my machine gunner said i know where it's coming from shot him out of the tree so you know you go through experiences like that Bruce, I could have asked this question because we're two human beings, but I don't ask it lightly. Did you ever kill anybody? I have. I have. Unfortunately, yeah. it was. Uh, it had to be done because it was either them or myself. How do you feel about that, you know, decades I'm not, later? I'm, I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it, and I never have been, but it was a part of my life and that we had to do it. If you didn't, you're not going to come out of your life. Uh, did it change you being a soldier? It made me grow up a lot quicker. And it made me understand uh, about life and death a lot easier. You know, um, 
you can imagine me uh, at, at 18 years of age going into uh, a bush camp where there's 300 and 400 dead opposition and you coming there, following the uh, tracks from there, following the opposition again. Uh, yeah, you, you see things, and you, but you have to go through it. Um, Counselling of, of people that have been there and done these things, you, 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 sometimes you can't. Two of our guys just went into the toilet, put the, the gun to their chin and blew their head, top of their heads off uh, because they couldn't take it. It was a part of life that you don't want to ever go and repeat. And I know in the world today there's atrocities happening everywhere. And we're living in a very, very peculiar time. And for me, safety is the best, best and negotiation if you can. Rhodesia should never have been like that in a war. Because negotiations, you could have got out of it with negotiations. And then young they, people like yourselves and the other people in the other parts of the opposition abs absolutely. wouldn't have to go and kill each other. Yeah. And, of course, you always have this ridiculous thing then that people have been involved in wars. Suddenly, the war ends or your time in the army ends and you're thrust straight back into what the American soldiers in Vietnam called the world. We're going back to the world. And you went back to the world, but another huge change in your life. You, you went to North America to play for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Well, I went down to South Africa first uh, when I first came out of the army. I, I, I didn't want to stay in Rhodesia. Six weeks in the army, six weeks back out in civilian life. So I went down to Durban, signed for Durban City, and started playing uh, professional or semi-professional soccer, selling cars on the, in, during the day and playing soccer in the, at night. And it was, I was down there 18 months when I got a letter from the South African Defense Force um, stating that in six weeks or six months' time, I would be going into the South African defense uh, team in a, in a squadron, 62 squadron, which was in Mozambique. Uh, sorry, in Angola. And I looked at the friend of mine and I said, well, why, why have they done this? They even quoted my, uh, my army number, 108085, Corporal Krola. You're hereby notified that you in six months' time you'll be going into 62 Squadron in, in Angola. And I questioned this and I said to a friend of mine, Harry, that I was living with at the time, I said, uh, what are we going to do? He said, don't worry, we'll do something. Six weeks Later, I got a ticket to come over to Britain uh, to on a trial with West Bromwich Albion, which I came and I was here for five months. Ron Atkinson, Atkinson Colin Addison, his uh, assistant. And Colin Addison actually was coaching uh, Durban City at the time that I went into the army. And they tried to buy my army um, contract out to take me to South Africa, uh, which the Rhodesian army said no. Of course they wouldn't because, because I was a grade A tracker. They kept me in. So that was, it was one of those things, you know, you had to come out somewhere. So I came out of there, came over to the UK, and I couldn't get a work permit. Uh, mm -hmm. So that South African passport or a Rhodesian passport, you couldn't. Uh, ended up going to Vancouver after that because I couldn't stay here without a work permit. Vancouver offered me a, a green card to play in the States and, and in Canada. Yeah, and uh, you played there under um, Tony Waiters, great old England goalkeeper. <laughs> might have been, um, I could have this wrong, might have been the third goalkeeper in the World Cup winning squad. Might, yes. have, been, might have been Gordon Banks, Ron Springer, and, and perhaps Tony it, Waiters. It was Tony Waiters, uh -huh. yes. Yeah. Very good. Uh, well done, Danny. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, tell us about playing in the NASL. Well, the North American Soccer League was uh, a great 
great time for me, um, especially coming out of the the army, uh, coming out of and playing soccer in South Africa and coming over to UK. It kept my mind off what uh, atrocities I had seen during that time. And going over to North America, it was like a fun. You had to try and make the uh, game of soccer over there uh, because we were we were fight, fighting to try and get the audience off the American footballers. Sure. So it made it fun. So they had uh, various things like pass the chicken, a person dressed in a chicken, and, they, and the, this chicken was getting passed over everybody in the stands, and nobody even looked at the football on the, on the field. They're watching the chicken getting passed around. So you had to try and get that... Uh, that side of it. They had some pretty serious footballers there, though. Giorgio oh. Canalia was there because he was virtually organising it. Johan Naiskins, Alberto, Carlos Alberto, Beckenbauer, Rude Kroll. Pele. You know, we had uh, an array of people that are uh, fantastic players. The team that I played with was Alan Ball and uh, Willie Johnson, John Samuels, you know, uh, Trevor Wymock. The other goalkeeper was Phil Parks from Wolverhampton Wanderers. You know, John Craven, his centre-half. You know, we had Derek Posse from uh, Leighton Orient. We had a very, very good team. From there, you do make your way back to England yeah. and, and through that amazing academy at Crew Alexandria, you yeah, eventually well, end up at Liverpool. Well, what happened then, uh, Tony Waiters, when they said to me, listen, um, I've only seen you play three games in the first team and uh, you've done okay, but I want to send you back to the strongest team in the English league. So I looked at it and I'm thinking, oh, Liverpool? Nah. Manchester City? Nah. Arsenal? I'm thinking all these. Yes, mm. no, no, none of those. They, they're the strongest team because they're 92nd in the Football League. Crew Alexander. <laughs> they're holding up the rest. <laughs> yeah. So I went to Crew Alexander, got there at, in October. Same passport, couldn't get a work permit. In in the end, December time, I ring my mother. How do I get uh, an English passport? They need someone that's born on British soil. So she said, try this one. Your great-grandfather, my grandfather, was in the Fusiliers during the Boer War. Uh-huh. There they were stationed at the Cape Town Fort, now called the castle. And in 1903, your grandfather, my father, was born in that castle. British stronghold during the Boer War. So I brought that back, all that, went down to Croydon, gave it in. She says, where's your passport? And I slid that underneath, stamped it, ancestral visa, so now I can play. You must know, you must know if I'd known that a year earlier, you know where I'd be playing. West Bromwich Albion. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Bruce, you had spent a brief time um, at Crew Alexander before you were signed by Liverpool. How did that come about? Well, I was sent there by my manager at uh, Vancouver Whitecaps, Tony Waiters, and he just said that he wanted me to go there and try and get uh, some experience in in the fourth division. And if you can play in the fourth division, you could play anywhere. And it, it, it was true. I had 24 games at, uh, at Crewe, started on the 20th of uh, December 1979 till the 3rd of May 1980. And in those 24 games, I was watched by um, one team 20 times, Manchester City. And Tony Waddington was our uh, manager. And every time they were coming to watch me, or anybody who's going to get watched, he would tell the player, this mm -hmm. team is watching you. This, and he would never uh, you know, hide it from me. And so uh, I played 24 games, one loss. Um, which was the first game of the season, and uh, we didn't end up 92nd anymore. We were 86th last game of the season. He says to me, uh, two very important people are coming to watch you today, Tom Saunders and Bob Paisley from, from Liverpool. Don't do, something, uh, don't do anything stupid. Well, uh, just before the game, it started raining, so I said to the, uh, going out for our warm-up, I said to the tea lady, may I borrow your umbrella? And I ran out with the umbrella. So you must, you must imagine what day was it. And I did, went through my old mumbo-jumbo, walking on my hands, sitting on the crossbar, asking them to shoot, and me coming down off the top of the crossbar to try and save it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kicking the ball onto the shed roof, which had rusted, and all the pensioners getting the rust in their the hair. shower of rust, yeah. yeah. You know, really firing them up. And uh, as I came off, there's the manager shaking his head. I said, what's the matter, Gaffer? He said, you know those two very important people that came to watch you play? I said, what do you mean came? He says, yes, they've left to go and see Port Vale play Stoke City eight mile down the road. <laughs> and you, that was it. You signed to Liverpool, quarter of a million pounds, a lot of money for a fourth division football in those days. Um, they were a brilliant team at the time. They won the, the European Cup two months after you joined them. Yeah. And they had one of the great goalkeepers in the history of this game, Ray Clements, in the team. Why did you join Liverpool? Because you must have been putting yourself down for 10 years on a subs bench. Well, when I went there, um, Bob Paisley said to me, well, you're going to have to play the away games in the reserves. And I had three away games from uh, March until that May. And we could go and watch the first team. And yes, I was watching Ray Clements. Uh, he was one of the best keepers in the world. And he was, you know, one of my heroes as well. Um, a person that you look up to. And it was one... one uh, just before the the cup final, uh, Matt Darcy, one of the reporters, had an interview with myself and uh, Ray Clements, and he was saying to Ray, uh, "How's it going to be with uh, young Bruce Crawley?" Um, and Ray said, "Well, I'm, I'd like to teach him for another two years." And I immediately went to Ray, "I'm not here for two years. You're getting a bit old, and I'm going to take your place." 
and he got up and walked out. So, <laughs> and it was incredible because, um, and this is a very important moment in your life and career, having won the European Cup with Liverpool, Clemens then ups and leaves the club at the very height of his career. I mean, I support Spurs, so it was a benefit to Spurs. <laughs> he came down and had seven or eight brilliant years at Tottenham. Um, why did he leave, do you think? Because you told I'm, him he was getting old? There, there were various... Uh, he, he said to, in the press that he needed a new challenge, and, you know, both of them. I did tell him that he was getting too old in that interview, and he went. And when I was on holiday, I was in Hawaii at, at the stage playing golf. As I'm coming down to hit the ball, my, my agent, my lawyer... He says, Ray Clements has gone to Spurs, and I hit the ball out of bounds. Nearly broke someone's window. And I turned to him and I said, what, what did you say? He said, no, three off the tee. I said, no, no, before I hit it, what yeah. did you say? He said, you've got a chance. That phone call was telling me that Ray Clements has now gone to Spurs. It's you or Augie, Steve Grizovich. Yeah. So when I came back preseason, I played every single preseason game. And Augie wasn't very happy. He went down to the boss's office, knocked on the uh, boss's door. And, you know, when you knock on the boss's door, 13 other people are going to come down and listen. Right. Uh, so you, all you hear is, yep, yeah, come in. What do you want? He said, well, boss, I've been here eight years and I've got a European Cup winner's medal, you know. And uh, now you've got this new guy, Bruce, and he's played all the, the preseason games. You know, I, I need... I, I've been here and I'm, I should be in the in the team and I want to play every single weekend. He says, yeah, you can play every single weekend. I've just swapped you for Bob, Bob Wardle from Shrewsbury. So <laughs> to get your stuff and get out. <laughs> and that was it. Let me ask you a question. You come into Liverpool, then the biggest club in Britain, champions of Europe, um, expected to win every game. You're a young man. You've got no Premier League experience. Um, I was going to say that must be terrible pressure. But do you think that what happened to you previously in the bush, in the war, um, had meant that and it, maybe you're a whole relaxation as a footballer? Maybe it just you can't because you can't compare it to experiences. Um, I've always said that I won't apologize for having a smile on my face in playing football. And that's how I played my game. Uh, here I am, I got out of the bush war unscathed. I am doing something that uh, makes people happy, makes me happy, and I'm getting paid for it. That is the best uh, way just to celebrate uh, life. And from even the, you know, even the people that died in that war is to try and celebrate life for them as well and their families. And that's, that's how I played my football. First six months, yes, it was a baptism of fire. Boxing Day, uh, Boxing Day 1980, uh, one, um, we lost 3-1 to Manchester City and I get the hook finger from Bob Paisley and again go down to the his office knock on the door you know be behind you 13 other people are going to come and listen mm -hmm. knock on the door yep come in right sit down he says how do you think you've played in the last six months and I said oh, boss I'm I, I could be playing a, a lot better, you know, um, but I have played pretty well in some, but I could be playing better. He says, yes, you better play better, otherwise you find yourself back at crew. Now get out. <laughs> and that was it. We were 13th in the league, 13 points behind the first place. We ended up winning the league with a game to spare by three. So I that's mean, what the turnaround was. And, of course, you are 
incredible would come on to this about the amount of success you had at Liverpool, but particularly in these early years. And within a few months of being in the first team, in the spring of the, of the following year, you win the League Cup at Wembley. You in a 3-1 victory over Spurs. What do you remember about that game? Well, I remember going back to Wembley and it was the two ex-goalkeepers. And, uh, Ray, Clements Ray, Clements Spurs, was, yeah. Ray Clements was going uh, for Spurs. And it was uh, dubbed as uh, the, the teacher and the student. Um, and yes, Spurs went uh, 1-0 up very early by Steve Archibald. And then uh, we equalised and went on to win 3-1. We were talking about these years when in the mid-80s when Liverpool um, won everything. They won the, the league title and the league cup in successive seasons. And it, but in 83-84, in it could have all come to an end in some ways because that great manager, um, arguably the greatest manager along with Ferguson that this country's ever had, um, Bob Paisley left and Joe Fagan took over. Was that a, a difficult time? Well, it it was difficult for us to realise that uh, he had uh, wanting he was wanting to go, but he turned around and he said, "Listen, uh, I'm going to be going out of uh, the playing circle, and I will be watching from the stands." And uh, and Joe Fagan took over, and it was like nothing ever changed. Seamless, yeah. It was it was ease the ease that uh, Joe Fagan came in with was in- incredible. And the following season is 83-84. And again, I have to keep saying it, for other players, this would be the highlight of their career. You won the League Cup. You won the league title. Again, you are uh, you played every single game um, as you went to that league title. But people will remember now that this is also the year in which uh, Liverpool won the European Cup. The Champions League is as it is now in Rome against Rome. What do you remember, what do you remember about the run to the final? Oh, the run to the final was quite remarkable. Uh, we played uh, Benfica in... You know, we we drew one one at home, and we go play in the in the Stadio de Lutz in in uh, Lisbon, and we're staying in Estoril, and uh, yeah, we we go there, we get, go goal down, and we think, oh my goodness, and then Craig Johnson has a a world class game. And he goes and scores two goals, and we win. End up winning three one there. Four one actually. Well, oh, four one. Yeah, yeah four one. Yeah. Ended up winning four one, and, and a remarkable game. Um, it was only afterwards, the next day, we, where we we played a trick on uh, the management because um, we were sitting outside our windows of the hotel. You know, old old windows. You long ledge ledge yeah big ledge yeah. big ledge so we're sitting outside with our legs over the le- edge and we're on the third floor you see and uh one of the one of the coaches says get yourselves in you, you can't be doing that and yet we we knew that he was going to try and get into our room well he had to go downstairs to get a key so as soon as you heard the door go he went in and listened to the uh the footsteps going away we went out down a service lift by the kitchen Looked around, oh, tomato sauce. Went out underneath our win- window, <laughs> poured tomato sauce. Okay, Craig, you lie like that and I like this. And then he came out in our room, looked over the balcony, went, oh, <laughs> run all the way down. And as soon as they came out, he said, one, two, three, Craig, ready. Boom, and we both jumped up. Yeah, not a right thing to do because no. they they find us two weeks' wages and yeah, put it through charity. Still pretty funny. <laughs> pretty funny, funny, yes. As you say, it was, it was a remarkable run because um, you, you mentioned the, qu- the quarterfinal against against Benfica but, but the, then the, the game before that against Atletico Bilbao, Bilbao you drew sure. in, yes, in Liverpool drew. again had to yes. win in Bilbao so yes it was a 1-0 win and the semi-final you beat Dynamo Bucharest home and away, away yes. to get to the final now the final course is, is remarkable because it uh, very rarely happens 
and you're playing the opposition again on their home ground. Their home ground, That's not yes. fair, is it? Let's be honest. Well, it wasn't. It's not fair, but it's the, the way that it actually pans out. Um, uh, it's good for them because they've got their, their home ad- advantage. But when we went there, the, the, the actual game was set out b- right before the game. Um, this, it was set out because we knew what ki- type of opposition we, we, we were up against, and especially the fans. Before we got into the stadium, the bus driver, three directors, uh, two guys that we picked up on their way, uh, the, the team members and the physios, we were stoned before we got into the stadium. Not by smoking anything. No, yeah, by actual literally rocks hitting rocks the... coming through the window. So we knew that we are in a place, a baptism of you fire. You seem to be attracting a lot of incoming in your life, Bruce. Forgive yeah. me. Uh, yeah, and uh, so we get in there, and uh, we, we we get out into the into the tunnel, and the opposition don't come out. So we started singing a song of uh, Chris Rea. I don't know what it is, but I love it. I don't know what it is, but I want it to stay. And we started banging on their door, bang, bang to get the Roman players out. It, love it. And Suna said to us, "Just pick a face." Look him in the eye and carry on singing. So you can imagine all of us. I don't know what it is, but I love it. Looking the, at the opposition in the eye. They thought we were crazy. Well, we drew 1-1 and then we go through to the penalties. Let's listen to how that amazing and I think never to be forgotten game for anyone who saw it, whether you're a Liverpool fan or not, an astonishing game of football with an astonishing denouement ending, if you like. Of course, people talk about you winning that penalty shootout. You didn't actually save a penalty, but you put enough of their players off that they couldn't score. Well, that was it. Uh, going up there uh, just before their first penalty, I got this arm around me and I didn't even have to look up because I could smell the cigarette. It was smoking Joe. And he said, listen, young man, myself and the uh, coaches, uh, your captain and the team, uh, the chairman and the directors, uh, the wives and girlfriends, and I'm thinking, where's he going with this? And, and he says, and also the 7,000 uh, Scouse fans are not going to blame you. And I, I, my legs started to crumble. And I thought, not going to blame me if you can't stop a ball from 12 yards. So as I was Incredible. walking away, he said, but try and put them off. So the second penalty taker was uh, Bruno Conti. World and, Cup winner, of course. And he picked up the ball and he's like skipping along, like without a song. Confident. Know, confident. Oh, and you can almost hear him saying to himself, I'm Bruno Conti. I crossed that ball for Pruzzo to score. Now I'm going to score a penalty. So I stood on my line and I said, All right, if you want to dance with me, we're going to dance 60 style. Put my hands on my knees and crossed over as, <gasps> as soon as he came to kick the ball. And where did it go? Went over the bar. And I thought, I, I might well work. You're onto something here, yeah. yes. Then, the, of course, the spaghetti legs are the most famous of your tactics. Yeah, but the penalty before that. Yeah. I got into there as quick as I could because I, I've been watching him for two days at that stadium, put penalty after penalty after they'd finished. Same corner, same corner, same corner. Boy, I, I was up, up for this one. As soon as he kicked the ball, I went top corner. I looked over, it went in the other side. Uh, only, only for me to realize I was watching him take the penalties from the other side of the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> so third, you know, the last penalty, Graziani, he picks the ball up. And he goes and puts his arm around the, the referee, which I didn't like. So that's when I went into the net and I bit the net. And now I'm still looking at him. I went to the other side, I bit the net there. And then all of a sudden he takes the ball at the spot, kisses it, puts it down, and he crosses himself. And that's when I came in, like, I, you know, with those wobbly legs. Yeah, I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? But, you know, the, the net 
Looks like spaghetti. I'll give him spaghetti legs. Incredible night and a wonderful, wonderful achievement for Liverpool Football Club. I have to throw a year forward then, another European Cup final against Juventus, another Italian team at yeah. the Heysel, King Bodwan as it is now in Belgium. And a very different night, one with no fun, no drama. Um, tell me what you remember about Heysel. Uh, Heysel was a very good, uh, it was a fantastic day. Where we got there and travelling to the uh, ground, you see Liverpool fans playing football on the grassy uh, parks with with the against the Italians drinking, and there was nothing untoward, uh, you know, before the kickoff. We get into the dressing room and uh, we come out and have a look at the the pitch, and we see the Italian side full of the Juventus supporters. We look on the other side. There's only a quarter of uh, the one side for our fans, and we're thinking, well, this is not on, you know. And the the wire, the, it was like chicken wire. Yeah, you know, you, it wasn't a proper barrier. It wasn't a barrier. It was a chicken wire, put put up very very quickly, just to keep uh, the fans apart, with a little section for the police to go into. Well, there were only two or three of them there anyway, and this side was full of Juventus fans, so. You can see that little bit of animosity there. But we went back into the dressing room thinking, okay, fine. And then we heard this crack and a crumble. Bang. You actually heard it. We heard it because our dressing room was nearer that side. Two of our players, myself and Alan Kennedy and uh, John, the late John Benison, we were ran out to see and they, uh, they were asking for water. So we got pails of water from the dressing room, giving them with some towels. Uh, they needed that. And then we were told stay in. Joe Fager went out with Phil Neal uh, to try and calm everything down, get the you know fans back off. Sure. And it was about an hour. They they should we play? Should we not play? Uh, we were told uh, it's going to have to go go on because they didn't want this uh, to spill into the streets. And it was one of those games uh, sh we didn't want it to play. I'm thinking about the um, French players in Paris last yeah, weekend. Yeah, I go, know? I go into the into my penalty area, and there's two knives stuck in the in the turf, and if they come that far and get stuck in the turf, I'm I'm in a little bit of you know danger if I if I may say so. I picked sure. up the two knives, put it down, and behind my goal, I saw a very good friend of ours, uh, Irish gentleman, sitting on uh, sitting on a I think it was the the, the steeplechase water hurdle mm -hmm. and he was sobbing his eyes out and that was during the game sobbing his eyes out were you and the other players we, where 39 people had died in the stadium when when we went when it was kicked off we were told there was about 10 so we didn't know the full extent we knew people had lost their lives it was the only time my mother actually came from Africa with her husband to watch uh, me play and it was the last time she ever came again um, because of what happened there. It was, and that year, I turned around and I said, I'm not going to be playing uh, football again. And uh, myself and my family, we went to the island of uh, Cayman Islands. And I was there just relaxing and just thinking about things. Um, they came to me and asked me to coach their national side. They're playing against St. Kitts uh, in two days with, with your mind uh, coaching the team, and that would, that coaching that side and winning one 0 with, with the Cayman side made 
my enthusiasm you know, come back for the game. And it was the family that actually put me back into football by saying, if you if you leave now, the the people that perpetrated these things are going to win. Don't give don't don't give them that. So I came back to football. Let me ask you one more question about it. After yes. that, it's been much discussed. England English fans were banned from Europe. English teams were banned from Europe. Do you think that was necessary? Um, it is not for me to actually uh, say. Um, for me, I know for a fact that it wasn't uh, true Liverpool fans. Uh, they were perpetrators. Uh, they came over there, did their business, jumped on the ferry and went back. Uh, so the damage had been done. There were leaflets out uh, that saying that Liverpool will never be in Europe again before the game. So, yeah, we we got banned. And for them to do that, they did themselves unjust as well and all the rest of the teams in the English League because they got the whole English League banned. So we got a, we we had a longer time in the in this ban uh, the for us not playing in in Europe. But yes, uh I, it's not for me to say it's the authorities that made the decision and we abide by that. What was it like working out of Kenny who you played with of course? Well, it was it was a remarkable choice. Uh they said that they needed a new coach uh, when Joe Fagan left, and I know why he left because of uh, the Heisel disaster. Yeah, and uh, we ne they needed someone, and they were going to groom someone in from the from the boot boys, but they didn't. They went for a player manager in Kenny. Incredible, Dalish. the chat. You know, a team that's at the top of the game. Yeah, again, uh, Kenny was a, a natural choice. Uh, we all thought that he was a great leader. Um, and so he he took over, and and it, again it was like effortless. That when just all everybody had the utmost respect for Kenny, and we listened to him. But he also had the backroom staff of uh, Ronnie Moran and Roy Evans with him, so that never left us. So the backroom staff, the the biting at your heels was Ronnie Moran, and the soothing was uh, Roy Evans. Dalglish doesn't give much away in public. What kind of a bloke is he? A fantastic person. Um, I know in 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 public he's very very dour, mm. and you can say he's a dour Scot, but he is not. He's uh, once you get him warmed up and in in a, in, a, in a room without any, you know, uh, media or uh, newspaper or press, yeah, he opens up. He's very quick witted, and that's what you got to find out. You know, find with him, um, very. Uh, unusual in his uh, approach of uh, of, of witn witness, you know. Your current job, your goalkeeping coach at the. I'm a goalkeeping coach in Ottawa Fury in the North American. And your league. new job, your new manager is your new boss is. Uh, my new boss is Paul Dalglish. Let me ask you a question then: <laughs> If Paul gets out of his box, can you ring Kenny? Um, no, I'm going to be seeing Kenny before I go back. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the word will get down. Uh, the word will get down there, yes. I mean, the first scene on Dalglish is business as usual with uh, with the club band uh, from Europe. They mop up what they can do here. They win uh, the league and cup double. Um, you again are ever present. I suppose the, the the more important, if you could ever downplay a winning the championship, and you can't, I guess the important one was the 1986 FA Cup final because. Uh, it's the first all-Liverpool all final. All-Liverpool all or Merseyside, all Merseyside yeah. final, yes. And, of course, Everton were the coming power in English football at that time. Yes, they were. And, uh, um, the, the late, late Howard Kendall, Howard yeah. Kendall, Left yes. us so recently, yeah. yeah. Tell us what you remember about the game. Oh, the game. 
I remember having an argument with Jimmy Beglin uh, yeah, down famously. the line. Yes, and uh, it, it was well, quite surreal. The ball was going away from us. I was running after it, and he was in front of us, and I said, leave it. Uh, uh, Jimmy, leave it. I'm going to run past and pick it up. Well, he put his foot on it, stopped the ball. I ran past the ball. Like in a cartoon. Come back. <laughs> it was like a cartoon figure. As soon as I got the ball, I pushed him and I said, Jimmy, don't you understand English? And his answer was, I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I put the ball down. I got it back. I threw it out. Jan Mulby to uh, Ronnie Whelan. Ronnie Whelan to Rush. Bang. There we go. Well, actually, let's let's again again give ourselves a refresher, a mental refresher of that amazing day at Wembley when to clinch a double uh, for Kenny Dalglish in Liverpool with Bruce Grubler in goal yet again. It, on a footballing side, all we've talked about since um, since you came on the show here is pretty much triumph after triumph after triumph. What happened in nineteen eighty six, eighty seven? Liverpool. I'm just checking the records here. Let me flick. No trophies at all. Yes, it was quite uh, remarkable. We didn't uh, go and. Uh collect any trophies uh, I think we got knocked out early in the League Cup uh, mm -hmm. and then in the FA Cup I'm not too sure who knocked us out I, you know, I don't remember those those five times because we lost you lost to Arsenal actually in the, oh, in Arsenal, the, okay. in the, in the League Cup final League Cup yep. League, League yep. Cup final yeah. we got a final well you did get to a final yeah, Charlie George was it yeah, yeah. No, no no Charlie Nicholas Charlie Nicholas yeah Charlie Nick yeah. Charlie Nick uh, yeah he scored uh, I think two or probably two yeah, he got two, and, yeah. and and you lost that League Cup final. Yeah, we should then, of course, follow this up with I think a triumph that I, it sticks in my mind as one of the greatest in English league football. I mean, obviously, with the clubs banned from Europe, a lot of focus went on the Championship itself, and the team of nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight, Beardsley, Aldridge, Barnes, Houghton, McMahon, etc. In that team, and yourself at the back, they won that that, that league title. I'm going to ask you this: Was that the best ever Liverpool team? I would say, f for me, yes. 81, 82 and uh, 1988 were my two favourite Liverpool teams. What was it about the 88 team, Bruce? Uh, we could pass the ball around any team um, with ease. Um, you, if you have a look, as you said earlier on, in the, hmm. uh, whilst we were talking off, off air, air yeah. uh, Barcelona, you know, we could pass it around quicker and I will, faster than I will they explain, can do today. Uh, and this is not because I'm some kind of genius. It's just a fact. We, after Barcelona were doing their thing six years ago, the great Barcelona team, somebody said to me on air here, um, I mean, well, we've never seen the ball pass like this, have we? And I said, well, actually, that's not yeah. true. I think we have seen the ball pass like this, but a higher tempo, yeah. the Liverpool side of 88. I don't know what you remember about doing what you did that season. But I, can remember, I can only remember Liverpool having the ball for the whole season. Well, we... <laughs> We were told by the, uh, the manager then, don't let the other side get the ball because if they don't have the ball, they don't score, uh, which is true. And we, we just kept the ball. I mean, this is an impossible one to answer because if you think about it, um, there were great players on the continent that time. The Dutch team that won the European Championship in 88 was just laced with good players yeah. who were playing at big clubs in Italy and Germany and all the rest of it. But do you think... If you had been allowed into the into the European Cup, that Liverpool team would. I mean, you've got enough comp you've got enough experience of the Champions League, the, the European Cup. Would they have been champions of Europe? I I believe that we would be for sure. Um, uh, we didn't de listen. Uh, we didn't deserve. None of the English clubs deserved to actually get banned. If intelligence was like it is today, we weren't be we wouldn't have been banned. Those people that perpetrated perpetrated that uh, incident in Heisel would have been caught before and also getting away and so therefore we would never have been uh, 
band at all. Well, I'm rapping now, I'm rapping for fun. I'm your goalie, the number one. You can take the mix, don't call me a clown. Any more lip and you're going down. Yeah, that, that rapper there is Bruce Grobler, and Bruce is the subject of this week's edition of My Sporting Life here on Talk Sport. And that is the Anfield Rapper, of course, Liverpool's song for the 1988 FA Cup final, which, Bruce, you had a pretty notable role in. Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, not a game that Liverpool fans and Liverpool players remember with any great affection. No, not at all. We were favourites for, for that, that, that day, for sure. It's funny, isn't it? Because in reality, Wimbledon finished in the top seven or eight in the, in the league. Yes, and yet are. it is presented as though like the biggest uh, sort of calamity in, the, in, his, in football. No, they were, they were a fine side. They knew what they had to do. They played to their strengths, which was bullying every, everybody off the park, uh, which sometimes helped. Um, we weren't going to take the bullying. So we stuck to our game plan and played them off the park. But... Uh, Unfortunately, we had 70% of possession and they got the goal. And that's football. I mean, you've, you've lost big games before, I'm sure. Does that one leave a particular taste in your mouth? I know Ray Houghton is still seething about it <laughs> 30 oh, well, years later. Listen, I am. Uh, it's one of the games where uh, you see the penalty taker, uh, John Barnes, hold, holding the ball. And the next minute, uh, John Aldridge is going to take the penalty. Had we had got jo- John Barnes to take the penalty, we might have scored. I think we would have scored. Um, because uh, Dave Bessant knew John Aldridge and where he puts the ball. Mm-hmm. And the, the stutter step goes to his left, bang, there we go, save. And made him a, an England player after that. It, Dave was Dave, it was Dave Bessant's day, wasn't it? Oh, he, I mean, he, had he was the captain of the team, yeah. he was the goalkeeper, he saved a penalty. He lived within sight of the stadium, Absolutely, which I think yeah. is true as well. Yes. Um, so maybe there are these things that are sometimes preordained. It was Dave's day, wasn't it? It was Dave's day that day, yes. Okay. Or... Mr. Sanchez, yeah, he's the one that got the goal. The following season, unfortunately, the following season is best remembered for the Hillsborough disaster. I mean, you've had an amazing career, Bruce. You've been at some of the most important football matches. And you've also been at some of the most difficult occasions in the history of the game. Tell us what your recollections of Hillsborough are. Well, again, in the Hillsborough, we went down there a day before. Uh, we got into the hotel. John Barnes and myself went out, got haircuts, uh, went for a cup of tea at a few friends' houses out in Sheffield, and then came back to the hotel. Now, the next day, get up for a pre-match meal. Beautiful, sunshiny day. That's, you know, perfect day for football, especially in Sheffield, because normally in Sheffield it's raining, but it's a perfect day. And we get down to the ground. We go onto the pitch for warm-up, and middle section is getting filled up quite quickly. Outer sections aren't getting filled up, but not too much. So when you come out for your warm-up again, fences and, and the middle section is getting filled up. So we get out there and blows the whistle for the start of the game. Two minutes into the game, I think Peter Beardsley hits the crossbar and just a raw noise. Wow! The surge came in behind me. They went up, they came up, the ball goes over into that section and you can see their faces against the... The, you, the you're, you're, you of course, are in the goal. At that I'm at the goal in that end. So, so I go carry on playing. Bang, ball goes in the game behind me. The, now the surge, and I can see people getting lifted up at the back. Out of the, out of the standing out of the, area into, into, the, the, into the, the, the second the top. level, yeah. yeah. I kick the ball back up. The ball comes down about five minutes, six, five and a half minutes or six minutes. Comes out onto the left-hand side. I've looked back. The gate's now open. 
and I've made a beeline for the referee, and that was where the, the game ended. I go and retrieve my glove bag in the back of the uh, goal. I see three, four people lying on, and they needed the stretchers to go and get the others. And I said, use the hoardings and make them as stretchers. So that's what they did. They broke down the advertising boards mm -hmm. to get uh, bo uh, bodies on. To take. Out, yeah. And then Roy Evans came and took us off. Now, when we went into the dressing room, it was silent because we didn't know what was happening until one of the fans came into our dressing room and he said, I've seen four or five dead bodies. And then he goes back out and he comes back in completely distraught, 10. So we didn't know if we were going to go back onto the pitch. The referee says, no, it's being called off. We get a shower and change. On the, on the two-hour journey back to Liverpool, well, should be an hour, but it took that long, going through Sheffield and over the uh, Snake, Snake Pass, Pass yeah. we were listening to the radio. When we got to around about 30, body, uh, 30 dead, we switched off the radio. We didn't want to know anything. And it's one of those days where Merseyside, it should have been a, a joyous Merseyside. Everton had just been Sheffield Wednesday in the other semi-final at the Aston Villa. All this to be taken away from them because of this tragedy. And and people say, oh, it's only Liverpool. It, it wasn't. People that people that perished there at, uh, at Sheffield cool. Wednesday at Hillsborough, their parents or their sister or brother were Evertonian as well because they really often you, you, you got one side, a whole family um, supporting one. They mixed up in Liverpool. Scouser, Liverpoolian, marrying an Evertonian. Bang, they have the children. One goes one way, one goes the other way. So it, it didn't only hit Liverpool, it hit the whole of uh, Merseyside. I'll ask you a little while about about. I mean, first of all, very. Do you think the game you should have been forced to play the rematch against Nottingham Forest so quickly? Well, we were given a couple of days off, and uh, I, for me, this is where I think um, Kenny Dalglish is one of the best men I've ever met. Himself and his wife uh, Marina, they came up, and they were asked uh, to counsel the bereaved. Uh, families, and they came up with the su suggestion that everybody has a few families to go to see and knock on their door with a counselor to sit with those pe uh, with the people that perished, parents or brothers, and you sit down and talk to them. Now, what that did for them was counsel them, but it also counselled us as players. And for me, that was a stroke of genius. And why Kenny Dalglish is not knighted for what that what he did there, I it, it beggars belief. He went to why. every funeral as well. He went to every funeral. Um, when we got back, uh, he was supposed to say say the eulogy, and he asked me to do it at the at the Catholic Cathedral, which I did. And even even now, I'm I, you know, it's one of those things that uh, will never. Uh, leave me. Uh, the '96 that perished, they they never going to be forgotten. How did it affect you, Bruce, ongoingly in your life? Because you've seen a lot of things in your life. Yes, I've seen death by different different ways, uh, but not death in the uh, football stadiums. But 
you can say that that should never happen again. I witnessed it again in two places in South Africa. Kaiser Chiefs played against the uh, Orlando Pirates. It happened after this. And I witnessed it in the National Sports Stadium of Harare when uh, Harare played, a, sorry, Zimbabwe played against South Africa. And I just left earlier than that because as soon as the smoke bombs came, myself and the uh, Zimbabwe doctor and a friend of mine, I said, it's time to leave. And that was 10 minutes before the end. And when we went and we got to the golf club at the bottom of the road, found out that the 10 had died in the crush there. So I don't know. Will it ever happen again? I hope not. Bruce, I'm sorry we have to go to another uh, difficult, although back on a football pitch difficult event for you. Um, it's now become one of the most famous things that ever happened in English football. Michael Thomas's last-minute goal. It's all up for grabs now and all the rest of it. Um, I've interviewed on this programme many members of that Liverpool and Arsenal team on that, on that night. What do you remember about that night? I mean, this was going to be a chance for another double for Liverpool. Yep. They'd already lost the double the previous year Correct. in the last game of the season. And it happens again. It happens again, yeah. They say that lightning should never strike twice. Uh, it just happened to ha fall on this night. What I remember of it, yes. Mm. I remember John Barnes picking up the ball going into the corner. Two minutes left. Go on, John. Keep it there. Yeah. Get a corner. He's big enough and good enough to keep it there, isn't he? And then uh, I don't know what triggered his head. He, he thought he might have been in the American R Stadium in uh, Brazil, <laughs> and he dribbles past everybody, crosses the ball. John Lukic comes and collects it, rolls the ball out to Bold, Bold to someone else, and the next minute there's launched the ball over the top of uh, Hansen's head. And all you can hear, oh, my gosh. Now, I've gone, come out to see, all right, can I get out to get it? No. Stevie Nichols coming in from my right, so I'm backpedaling. Okay, Stevie, go on, go on, go on. There's only one place for him to actually put the ball is down to my left. I've gone left, and he's kind of kicked the foot onto his standing foot. Ball's hopped over my right shoulder and gone in the net. Well, we lose the league. And I, we go into the dressing room. Kenny looks at there's the champagne underneath ours, and it's got the label, 1989 league winners. Barclays League winners, Liverpool FC on it. I said, this is not ours. He says, well, you can take it next door. So myself, I took it next door with a friend of mine who was an Arsenal fan who I asked to come up to Liverpool to watch the real team win the, win the uh, league. And I said, uh, knocked on the door. George Graham came to the, their dressing room. I said, I believe this is yours only if he comes in. He's mm -hmm. an Arsenal fan. He ended up in the bath with him, <laughs> drinking champagne. Um, in 1990, um, another highlight of your career, another title for Liverpool um, under Kenny Dalglish. Um, I guess, it, you know, fantastic for you. Six league titles, Bruce. You couldn't have dreamed about that when you came to the English league. No, I, not at all. But if you have a look at what, what Liverpool were before I came with uh, Clements and all those players, yes, you knew that you were going to get uh, into cup finals or, uh, you know, in the league. You knew a team... Uh, what team you got to play for, and goalkeepers in, the, in those days had to had to have uh, least number of goals scored against them, and that was my aim: is to try and have the the least number of goals scored against me in the league. Let me ask you a question because I come on to the question about what Liverpool have done since, Bruce. Because you are such a huge personality, as we've heard tonight. You do amazing things like pretending you're dead to upset a coach. You <laughs> send the champagne into the opposition's dressing room. You do spaghetti legs and all the rest of it. 
your record tells me that you couldn't have been in that team and did what you achieved unless you were a great goalkeeper. Do you think the carry-on, the Bruce Grobbler act, actually detracts people from what a great goalkeeper you were? Well, I'll give it to you another way. My very first game at, in Merseyside was at, the, at, at Goodison. And we were losing the game 1-0. And it was my mistake that uh, the goal had actually went in. And half-time I come out going to the Gladys Street end and the, there's these three guys on the pitch all with clowns' outfits on. And they've given me a big board of a clown's face and says, Bruce is a clown. And that's where the nickname came from, Bruce mm -hmm. is a clown, from the Evertonians. So I stuck the, the face against the fence at the Gladys Street end facing them. We went on to win 3-1. And every time I saved the ball, I'd look around and I'd go like this. And when we won 3-1, I looked back at there, picked up my, you know, the clown's, clown's face, face. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. The three of them getting beaten up by their own fans. <laughs> <laughs> so the last laugh was on them. You know, that's where it stemmed from. So when, whenever I went away from uh, home to other grounds, that's what they called me, a clown. That was 1990 when you win this, this championship with Liverpool. It's unimaginable they could have gone a quarter of a century, that club, without winning another title. Yes, uh, I feel for them. Um, I think that, that the, the goalkeepers that they've got uh, now or had since that time uh, haven't stayed long enough. So the managers have got rid of the goalkeepers too quickly. Uh, I hope that this one stays a little longer and he can grow and learn. But I, I would take it down to goalkeeping coaching. Uh, goalkeeping coaching for me was nothing in, in my time at Liverpool until 1992 when we got a goalkeeping coach in and it was by uh, Graham Souness said uh, when I came back uh, you've got a goalkeeping coach here I looked at him and I said how can he teach me how to be a Liverpool uh, goalkeeper he played for Manchester City and he never came, Joe Corrigan, Joe Corrigan and he never came out of his six yard box so how can he teach us how to play in goal for Liverpool well he was there and that was the, our goalkeeping coach. You went on to win one more FA Cup, Bruce, uh, with Liverpool. But like all good things, it starts to come to an end and you, you move on to Southampton and play for them. But the end of your career is also kind of bound up with, you got involved with a match-fixing uh, scandal and trials. You end up in court in 1997 with Hans Segers, uh, the Malaysian businessman uh, Heng Swan Lim and John Fashionu. Um, two trials. Uh, in both cases, the juries couldn't come to a decision. So you're, you're, you walk free and you sue the Sun newspaper. But that's that's even as big an agony as the Colch case, isn't it? Well, it actually started as a, a lawsuit in the beginning. Uh, they came to me with a picture of myself uh, with that uh, picture with the money. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew immediately there that what had happened and who had sold the, the story to the newspaper. And uh, from the airport, I went back to, Merse uh, to Merseyside and to Manchester Airport and went to a lawyer and we actually sued the newspaper then uh, but because it became a criminal trial after that and um, John Fashionu was dragged into it. At that time, John Fashionu looked after uh, Zambia national team. Um, and he got all the sponsors for the Zambian national team, also a Nigerian national team. So Zambia, the Zambian national team actually perished from Gabon going back to Zambia in an air crash. In an, in an air crash. Yeah. And we were uh, putting together a game of African players that lived in Europe 
to play against the Zambian side to raise money for the bereaved. And those phone calls between myself and uh, John Fashnu were construed as uh, going to um, a, a betting syndicate. Where Hansang Lim came in, he wanted us to go to Malaysia to play one of those games for the Zambian national team. And that's where it all came and it was a mixed mash. We kept quiet about everything and we made sure that they they tried to prove it. And that's how it is. Um, you successfully sued the Sun in the Court of Appeal. They changed the money around. You yeah. got a pound, um, but your legal costs were north of half a million pounds by this stage. Um, and you went bankrupt. Um, was that the only effect on your life, do you think? Yeah, the only effect was that and then loss of marriage, uh, my first marriage. My first wife, uh, uh, we had great times together. I've gotten, you know, utmost respect for her. She's, uh, we've got two great daughters uh, we still speak today. And, you know, life has to go on. Uh, but when, when things happen like this, I ha you know, you have to move on in life, and which I have. I've got a, a new wife now, a brand new daughter, live in Canada, and life is, life is very, very good at the moment. Given what we see in cricket and the, sh the sheer amount of money slopping around football, do you think that it is possible for professional footballers to throw a game, Bruce? Unless you've got eight or nine in the same team uh, doing it, it might be. Or the whole of the team. Uh, the best places to look are the referees. I've been in football all the time in, in, in all walks of life. I've been in Africa. I've seen it firsthand in Africa, coaching teams out there. The referees and linesmen are the ones that are, get, are taking the money for to make one side win over the other. And there's those people are the people that uh, uh, authorities should look at. Let me talk to you about um, about Zimbabwe, the country you came from. I mean, obviously, we, we see terrible things on the news about it and uh, how Robert Mugabe is a dictator and all the rest of it. You're one of the very few people I know, because we spoke about this off air, who gets personal phone calls from Robert Mugabe. Yes, I have uh, quite a few phone calls from him. Um, whilst I was uh, coaching out in South Africa, he... He rang me up. Uh, he wanted me to go and coach the national team again. And I said to him, no. And then I went on a, a malaria excursion out through Africa. Um, so I refused him once there. And then I went through Zimbabwe. He phoned me in Zimbabwe. He, he said, uh, I'd like you to come back and coach the Warriors. And I said, no there. And I get back to Cape Town to my fiance's house. Mm -hmm. I'm having a shower and my phone goes and she, she picks it up. And uh, the person on the other side of the phone says, "Excuse me, I'd like to speak to Bruce." Well, Bruce is un—he can't because he's, uh, you know, undisposed at this stage. Can I take a message? The message is, "Well, my name is Robert Mugabe," and she turned around and said, "Well, my name's Tina Turner," and put the phone down. <laughs> well, the phone rang again, and when he told her the telephone number that he was from, phoning from, she knew then it was it was him. And she was sitting on the edge of the bed. And I said, what's the matter? She said, can we get bulletproof windows here? I said, why? He said, Robert Mugabe's just rung you. So I rang him back. And uh, he just said, when are you going to come back and coach the Warriors? And I said, when I get paid in U.S. dollars, like, you know, should do. 
And he said, well, we've got a problem with the U.S. Mm -hmm. dollars, uh, foreign currency. I said, yes, we, uh, the country has. It's all going into your bank account. And he said, uh, well, you can't talk to me like that. I said, I just have. And he said to me then, 2007, young man, uh, don't come back. So I haven't been back to Zimbabwe. Are you afraid of Robert Mugabe? No, I'm not afraid of him. Um, it's, it had to be said. If the truth hurts, there it is. And, and yet I know, because um, again we spoke with this off air as we were preparing for the program, that if he would leave Zimbabwe, you'd happy, happily meet up with him and discuss everything. Yes, well, uh, they tried to get me to go to Zimbabwe to sort it out with him, but uh, I won't go back into the country. If he is out in, an, in a country where I uh, happen to be and we get to meet, I will go and meet him. But it, it'll be on a very, you know, mutual ba uh, basis. And I know that obviously football uh, in Zimbabwe is in chaos as well um, because of the way the country is run. Um, banned from the 2018 World Cup, um, and the, even the FA is run or has been run at various times by various members of the Mugabe clan. And I know you're trying to do something to help clear that up. Yes, uh, we, we are now going into a regime now that we want to get football people in there. Our, when, when we had the uh, manager, Reinhard Fabisch, we called it the dream team. And the dream team nearly got to the World Cup twice with Reinhard Fabisch. And it's this movement we're trying to get uh, the players that played in there that have got great education and good uh, uh, leadership skills to take over. And the person that we're trying to get in there is our old uh, uh, chairman of Zifa, uh, Trevor David Corral Jules. Now he's in South Africa and he, he wants to go back to take over the presidency. And we're trying not to go uh, the, the route of Chihuahua, who wants the. Uh, position as a personal gain uh, but he is the nephew of um, Robert Mugabe's wife Grace so Grace yeah. Mugabe so it's going back into the the government and and the people Didn't Mugabe's son also have a time running it no it was his nephew, oh, his Leo, nephew. Leo right. Mugabe okay, yeah. uh, but yet Leo Mugabe did quite a lot for the football and he was quite good the last one uh, Cuthbert Duby okay he made mistakes he didn't pay the uh, the, the coach and therefore they they get banned by FIFA. We are trying to get our new regime in there to take Zimbabwe in a new uh, a revolution called uh, the Dream Team to Reality, Trevor, headed by Trevor Corral Jules. And with that, we're going to get most of the players that have played under Fabish into the country to try and get the coaching right from the start and for our uh, national team to get to the 2017 uh, African Nations and the 2022 World Cup. And it, so if you go on to Facebook, there's a, actually a site called the Dream Team Into Reality and you can find it's, out all about the ins and outs of it there. It'll be put on as that. It'll be started by Trevor Corral Jules. So if you go and befriend him and then it'll go like that. It, it, has, to, it has to go viral because Zimbabwe is uh, a place and a team that Fabish uh, started and we nearly got there. So it's unfinished business that we need to do with the Zimbabwe uh, national team. Great people, the fans are brilliant, the people of Zimbabwe are brilliant, it's a fantastic place, we just need to get it back on its feet. The only thing that gets people together is the national soccer team. The ladies national soccer team are in the African nations for the very first time, and that's these, the soccer team, the warriors, the, the, uh, the, the super warriors, 
and then under 17s these are the teams that are the true ambassadors of Zimbabwe also the cricket team of Zimbabwe true ambassadors of of Zimbabwe are the soccer team okay thank you for that at the very top of the show and we're kind of bookending now we talked about the other place that you know very well Liverpool um 26 years since they won a league title Jurgen Klopp clearly excites you um how much work is there to do, though? Because the world has changed. You played in a Liverpool side that dominated the league, could buy the best players. Now there are clubs with perhaps more money. Um, and I hate to say this, you know, their history is more recent than, than Liverpool's. How huge a job have the owners of Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp got on their hands? Well, I think the, uh, the owners know that they've got a manager that might actually win the league with this team this season. Who knows? We're only seven points behind first place. We have played all the top sides away from home. So we've got them to come at to our place. So we, we, we as older players are very excited about the prospects of these games coming up and the run-in for us. It's not out of the picture that Liverpool uh, can win this. We can win this. Any team can win us this season because it's been such a topsy-turvy um, season. Leicester on top of the league. Who would have ever thought? Chelsea languishing. Yeah. Don't don't worry about Chelsea. They'll be picking themselves up. You know, there's no way that they are that bad a team to go that 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 way down. You know, and as for Leicester, it's a fairy tale for them, and long may it continue. But at the end, there will be the four teams, and Liverpool will be one of those four teams in the top of the running. And how often do you get to Anfield yourself these days? Well, uh, every year I come. Canada, yeah. yeah, every year I come back around about this time, and uh, I go and get a couple of games in. So I'll be getting the Swansea game and the West Bromwich Albion at home. And uh, and I sh- I, don't, I shouldn't have to ask. What kind of reception do you get at Anfield? <laughs> well, I go in there. I sneak in there. Don't worry. And uh, yeah, the, the reception is very very good. You're a pretty unmistakable character, Bruce, with the beard and the moustache <laughs> and everything. Do you feel loved? Yes. Those people are my family here, and they have been for the uh, best part of my life. You're coaching football now in Canada. Tell us about life uh, as it is today. Life is good. Uh, I w- we went over to uh, Canada because we wanted to bring up a child in the, one of the you know, safest places in the world. Uh, I think that we've got it in, in Newfoundland. Uh, my wife has got a very, very good job there. She's a, a, an anesthesiologist or an anesthetist mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, doctor of and she's a junior professor of the island so uh, life is good our daughter she goes to a French immersion school she's six years of age and uh, she skates she skis and yeah life is good and I I coach in Ottawa Ottawa Fury uh, in the North American Soccer League Uh, yeah and when you're coaching do you uh, are you disciplined and hard-working or are you still clowning around no 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 we we are disciplined hard-working we do a lot of research of the new teams uh, where their strengths and weaknesses are I look at all penalties so that I give it to the keeper and our keepers are, are you know really really good and fit and, and of course we've seen over the past 20 years the the number of brilliant goalkeepers have come out of the United States and Canada um, even you know some of them they're disguised as as other people like Begovic is a Canadian isn't he? Yeah, he's but, a Canadian. But, but it is a position that North Americans seem to specialise in. Well, because they play uh, American football and they go up and catch the ball, um, they can catch balls. Not like uh, some of these goalkeepers these days that go out and punch. You know, I'm I'm all for catching uh, ev- everything that comes towards you, anything uh, other than putting it past the post. Uh, so. 
you know, it's it's good. Uh, I've got a great uh, set of people going to be working with Paul Dalglish. Uh, I've got a, another two guys, Martin Nash and Philip Dos Santos there, and also Darko Buza at Ottawa Fury. We've got a great team, and we just wait, wait for next season and see what happens with us. Bruce, you've already lived the most remarkable up and down and roller coaster life, as we've heard over the last two hours. You look as fit today as when you were playing. You won't mind me saying that. Perhaps a tiny bit less hair, but other than that, as fit as you did the, in, in, a, in, a, in a green jersey at Anfield, hopefully there'll be many, many more decades of Bruce Grobler. What, what, what are your hopes for the future? Hopes for the future? Um, I hope that uh, Liverpool win the, uh, win the title, the, the league mm-hmm. title. I hope uh, Ottawa Fury win the soccer bowl one day uh, with me there with the goalkeepers. And uh, I just hope for a long and happy life. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.